Hi, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Sands, and I'm so glad you're here today. My guest today is Joel Trammell. He is currently the founder and CEO of American CEO, which is a company that empowers leaders to master one of the most demanding roles in the business, the one of chief executive officer. He has created what he calls the Chief Executive Operating System, CEOS, which is a proven curriculum for developing more effective CEOs, helping them find clarity, confidence, and results for new and established CEOs. During this conversation, we talk about the difficulty of becoming a CEO, what aspiring CEOs need to think about as they are preparing themselves, and in general, what leaders can do to develop teams and build a more powerful culture. Joel has done many things in his life. He's been the CEO of several companies, ranging from technology startups to a public company. He has founded his own company. He has written several books, including The CEO Tightrope and The Manager's Playbook. And he has a new book called The Chief Executive Operating System, which was released in May of this year. I know that you are going to enjoy this episode with Joel. He's pragmatic, he's articulate, and I think he gives you an inside look of what it takes to be a CEO, which is great to know whether you're aspiring to be at the executive level or just trying to figure out what makes CEOs tick. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Joel. Welcome back, everybody. I am here with Joel Trammell. Joel, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Great to be with you. All right. So I'm super curious. Tell us a little bit about what American CEO is and how it got started. So uh, American CEO is my attempt to capture, you know, 30 plus years of experience running various organizations from startup to public companies and and trying to give back the knowledge I've learned to help CEOs do a job that's, uh, you know, a very lonely job that uh, there's not a lot of expertise out there. There are not a lot of books on how to be CEO specifically. Uh, and so I'm trying to uh, expand that opportunity for people and, and give everybody a chance to be the best CEO they can be. So what kind of services do you provide? So we uh, CEO training, our, our kind of standard offerings, a three-day class. Uh, that lays out a systematic way to think about the role of the CEO in, in the modern American company. And then we have uh, services, consulting services around to help implement uh, that uh, system. We also train uh, executive teams and management teams. Uh, a lot of times once the CEO goes through the training, they think this is great, but I need my managers and executive team to be on board with what we're talking about here. And so we'll, we'll train those folks as well. And we have some software to help CEOs uh, run their organizations uh, using the system as well. Oh my God. I wish you would have been around when I started on this journey. Oh gosh, 17 years ago, because I had no clue what I was doing. And I think I made the assumption, I think, and I know that you've alluded to this, that people think like it's just a jump, right? It's just the next kind of phase in your career. But it is so different uh, being a, a CEO. I went from general manager to CEO, and it was a huge leap that I completely underestimated. So can you share a little bit about your thoughts on, you know, why people have that mis misconception and why it is such a misconception? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's natural. We start our career. We're hired by some manager. 
who knows more about the job than we do, you know, kind of by definition, right? And uh, every boss we have typically in the organization is somebody who has more experience and is more knowledgeable about their specific area. And that's absolutely true. I mean, a salesperson goes from being a salesperson, being a sales manager, being a sales director, being a VP of sales, being the executive vice president of worldwide sales. And in each case, uh, when a problem comes to their desk, it's by definition a sales problem. And they are typically the most experienced, most knowledgeable person in the rig. So we just assume the boss knows more than we do about kind of everything. But then when we take that salesperson and you put them in the CEO role, nine out of the 10 problems that are going to come to their desk aren't going to be sales problems. Somebody's going to want to talk about the new lease in Chicago that we're signing. And you're not going to have any knowledge of that. So the, the nature of the job changes when you move from an executive role to a CEO role. The executive role is all about having expertise in a functional area. CEO role is all about how you identify and leverage experts and organize experts across a wide spectrum where you can't possibly know all the youth. And I think in, uh, organizations do a really poor job of preparing, right, that next generation for CEOs. I mean, if you think about it, right, the average tenure of a CEO right now in a publicly traded company is five years. It's so hard to be successful. And five years is just not enough time. And of course, public companies are different than private with the with the pressure for short-term performance that they have. What do you think that companies can do to prepare leadership for taking that level of executive role so that maybe there isn't so much turnover and volatility uh, when a new CEO comes in? Yeah, so there, there are several different things that think would be helpful. One is, is instead of moving people linearly along a path of, of expertise, give them much broader experience. Uh, take that salesperson who thinks they want to be a CEO and move them into a product type role where suddenly they don't know all the answers and they have to learn to leverage people in the organization, be a better manager and an organizer of people. Uh, you know, structurally also you can set up roles uh, you know, the military does this very well. They have a commanding officer of every grade, but they also have an executive officer that sits below that commanding officer and everybody reports through the executive officer. So it's kind of a junior commanding officer in training. They get to see everything the CEO does. The problem in the most modern American companies is there's no one executive who sees more than a small percentage of what the CEO is dealing with on a regular basis. So there's no really training ground for the CEO role. There's only training ground for the individual executive roles. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why being a general manager did help make it a little bit easier is that, you know, even though I didn't have quite the same level of responsibility, uh, you know, it did give me a view of the overall company, um, you know, but that's not everybody's unique situation. So I agree with that. How do you give people a broader experience and, and see and test them, right? I mean, that's what you have to do is you have to test people to see. Do they have what it takes to be able to do this? So what do you, what is it that you look for in a CEO? What do you think makes a great CEO? Yeah, that's a great question. And people are always wondering and, and, you know, the obvious answer, you'd say you'd want somebody with a bunch of experience to be CEO, but that would not explain the success of people like a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg who took companies from you know, college, founding them when they were basically in college to, to worldwide success. So, uh, you know, I think there are a couple of things that are unique about their journey that, that tell us something about the CEO role. 
Uh, first, obviously, they were very smart. Uh, you know, both of them got a little bored at Harvard. You have to be pretty smart to be bored at Harvard. But you have to be smart in a certain way. You have to know what you know and know what you don't and be willing to augment your capabilities with people and processes that make up your weaknesses. So, you know, in Gates' case, he famously had Ballmer, if it was the sales guy, because his personality was not the sales personality. He didn't understand that. He understood how to build product. Well, Zuckerberg famously brought on Sheryl Sandberg to be the chief operating officer to turn the crank and do the things that he didn't well. So having a, a self-awareness of how you impact others, I think is critically important in the CEO role. Uh, knowing what you do well, knowing what you need help uh, from a people and process perspective to expand the capabilities of the organization. Uh, I think also being, you know, kind of knowledgeable about how the product is made, whatever it is, and how and how and why the customer buys the product are kind of the two key components. People ask me, you know, do you think you could be a good CEO of any company? And I say, no, there are many companies that would not be a fit for my skill set because I don't understand how the customer buys, why the customer buys, or how the product's made. But if you understand those two things, I think you can have a, be a good CEO across a, a fairly broad range of industries. Yep. So I know that you uh, always knew that you wanted to be a CEO, entrepreneur. Um, so I want to get into that story, but I, I, I'm really curious about this question. Do you think that CEOs are born or do you think they're made? No, they're, they're made. Uh, there are certainly tendencies again, that I think, you know, are better tendencies. I think it's better to, to, to be ge a generalist than a specialist is a better tendency to have, uh, you know, their behavioral tendencies from a perspective, you don't want to be too far on either spectrum, you wouldn't want a super introvert or a super extrovert. I think either one would be, you want somebody who's very balanced. The ideal CEO would kind of be behaviorally balanced. So he can kind of uh, see both sides of the spectrum. Uh, so I, th I think there are certainly certain tendencies that, that will lead one to want to be a better CEO. Somebody who wants to work through people and gets enjoyment in seeing other people be successful. I think that's a important characteristic to the role. If you're one who wants to do everything yourself, that's not going to be a great fit for the CEO role. Uh, but no one, you know, comes out of the womb, uh, going to be a great CEO. My mom said that I was the CEO of our family when I was like two years old. So <laughs> I asked that question because she's like, you were always like, we have a plan and this is what we're going to do. So, uh, anyway, it, it, it's a fun way for her to, to tease me. <laughs> All right, but you knew that you wanted to be in leadership from a very young age. So maybe tell us a little bit about your story, about your journey. Yeah, so one fascinated maze after college, I joined the U.S. military to teach at what they call Naval Nuclear Power School. And of course, the Navy is a large, very bureaucratic organization. And for various reasons, it just didn't operate very well. And, and that's what really fascinated me. I tell people, I wanted to be CEO. I'm not the classic entrepreneur who has a new idea and wants to build a new product or solve some problem that's just a pressing problem I can't go to sleep at night without thinking about. It was more about the organizational challenge of how do you run an organization once it gets to substantial size? How do you run that well? How do you run that efficiently? How do you run that the way that the people are engaged, customers are satisfied, and that the shareholders are happy? Uh, and that was that's the problem I've been thinking about probably for the last 30 years. 
Yeah. So how did that lead into, you know, the next phase of your career, your career? You know, you started several, a couple of companies and sold them and, and now, you know, mentoring CEOs. So maybe share a little bit about that. So, yeah. So at, at 25, I would have been happy if a Fortune 500 company would have hired me to be their CEO, but they wouldn't. <laughs> and so the uh, alternative seemed to be start my own. And uh, I even looked at uh, going to business school because I had an engineering degree. And, and uh, at that time, the business school in the local town wanted me to take 60 hours of undergraduate business before they would allow me into their MBA program. That was before MBA programs got smart and realized people would write them checks if they would take them. Uh, and so uh, it seemed like the easiest path was just to start my own business. And then, you know, as you probably know, once you do that, you become a little bit unemployable. I remember I did, uh, I saw the business and wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And I saw a job that I thought I was interested in. And I went to interview and, and the person doing the job that was not near as qualified to do their job as I was. And, and they started asking me questions and I just realized that, you know, it wasn't going to be a fit after having run an organization to go back in at, at the bottom of the, another organization. So you kind of become unqualified to do anything else. And, and so I tell CEOs all the time when they're first time CEOs, you know, you got to understand this job will ruin you because it's really hard to go back after you've been in the CEO role. So you better figure out a way to be successful and make it work. Yeah, I agree. My husband is the same thing. You know, I came in and, you know, worked my way up through the organization to become CEO. Uh, and, uh, but he's been a serial entrepreneur and he said the same thing. He's like, you know, when I get done with this, like, what am I going to do? I don't actually even know how to work for another person and who's going to hire me. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. You become a little bit unemployable. So hopefully you do well enough that you don't need the job. Exactly. Exactly. So Throughout your journey of building these companies, um, what are some of the lessons that you learned? What are some of the mistakes that you made that were really like those inflection points in, in your leadership? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is, you know, understanding that uh, when you may not have all the answers, you do have to be the leader and you can't uh, be passive about deciding the direction of the organization kind of have to set the direction and go. And now you realize there's information becomes available that shows your head in the wrong direction. Then you have to get your ego out of the way, be willing to change, but you can't be passive. The captain of this ship has to set a, a clear course and direction. They can't wait for other people to tell them where to go. And, uh, that's the tendency, especially I think of young, uh, inexperienced CEOs is to be very passive to try to uh, make decisions, uh, collaborative, uh, think consensus building is, is the way to go. And, uh, that unfortunately is not the right answer. You've got to set a clear direction and go. It doesn't mean you don't engage everyone in the organization to help you come up with that. But at the ultimate end of the day, you're responsible for setting that clear direction. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing I think I tell new CEOs is it's, you know, it's all your responsibility. At the end of the day, if it doesn't go well, it's your fault, no matter what the reason was. And so therefore you ought to be very clear about the direction, uh, you set for the organization. Uh, I think the you know, second thing that, uh, you know, when I graduated with an engineering degree, I thought being smart and being able to solve difficult mathematical problems was a valuable skill. And it does have some value, but much more valuable is the ability to understand people and get people to work well together. 
And that is a skill that takes a lot of time to develop. I don't think people are, are naturally born with that skill either. And so, uh, you know, the importance of people, the importance of, of personality and behavior. I mean, a lot of our, we start off our training talking about uh, personality differences and behavioral differences. And often that's very eye-opening for the students because uh, our natural tendency is to think everybody else is like us, just not quite as good looking and not quite as smart, but they're fundamentally like us. And it turns out they're not, they're different than us in all kinds of ways. Yeah, I think that was, you know, one of the, the things that I've really learned through this, um, I know that that personality styles are definitely different, but I think that because I was such a young CEO, I was CEO when I was 30 and, you know, was given a very big role without a lot of experience um, with the founders taking a big risk on me. Um, I thought because I can do it, everybody else can. Right. And so I probably invested too much in people who didn't have what it takes to keep going to that level, maybe not to the CEO level, but certainly to the executive level. Cause I'm like, well, if I did it when I was 28 and then 30, like why can't everybody else? And that was a huge, um, uh, eye opener for me that, that the CEO role really, you know, that not everybody can do it. Have you had an experience like that where maybe you over-invested in somebody where you thought, well, everybody thinks the way I think again, you could share an example. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it, it is a little bit of a strange dichotomy, especially when you're a young CEO, uh, that you're often dealing with senior executives who are much older and much more experienced in their job, uh, but you still have to evaluate their performance <laughs> and and let, and in some cases let them go because their performance is not cutting the mustard. And, and it is a, a little bit of a strange situation, but uh, that's the burden that the CEO faces. Again, you're the one that's ultimately responsible for the outcome of the business. And so you can't afford to have people on board who aren't, you know, getting with the program. And, uh, you know, when we uh, funded one of my companies, uh, we raised $11 million and brought in people, you know, I bring in the first sales exec and he didn't work out. And I bring in the second sales exec and he doesn't work it. Finally, the third guy, you know, you got it to work. And I think I went to two or three marketing people before I found the right one. Uh, but I think, you know, what I was fortunate is I, I, I did pull the trigger pretty quick. Uh, and when I realized they weren't going to work, I, I, I moved pretty quickly. And I think too many CEOs, because they're insecure about it, they're like a person more experienced than I am. Maybe they would be better at my job than I am. Who knows? But that's not their job. Their job's to be the people hardening. They're not getting, cutting the mustard up there. They're too slow to move and too slow to move on. That's critically important. You basically described my first like three or four years as a CEO. <laughs> I did all those things. I felt all those things. And, you know, but I believe like there's no other way to learn how to be a CEO, but to be a CEO, right? Because you're right, even as you can do everything right to prepare yourself, but there's just nothing like stepping into that position. And you just have to do it and go through those learning curves. Unfortunately, Sometimes your employees have to like suffer along with you as you go through those um, learning curves. And, you know, and that's what I look back on, you know, incredibly grateful for all of the opportunities I had to grow and for those mistakes that I made. But I also feel, you know, I feel a little bit like sorry for the people who had to like sit there and witness it and go for that bumpy ride with me uh, along along the journey. I'm sure there were several people that were like, what is going on here? Um, so yeah, I, I, that definitely resonates with me. 
All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, executive presence and executive restraint. Um, this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. You alluded to it earlier, right? That you need to, you know, not be too outgoing or, you know, too introverted or too extroverted. And and so what is what are your thoughts on um, on executive presence and executive restraint in the CEO role? And how do you train CEOs to have have those two attributes? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally you get into the concept that, you know, is broadly described as leadership, which we define in our training is the ability to influence others to eagerly follow your direction. What what causes people to do that? And and that's something that took me years. I mean, you, there are thousands of books written on leadership, uh, but it still tends for most people to be a very amorphous, hard to define, hard to act on concept. Some people seem to be leaders naturally, uh, but what are they doing? To, to that leadership. And it was, it was really made crystal for me one day. I had a gentleman walk in my office. Uh, he had been with the company at that point in time, you know, maybe two years. So he thought he was ready to run the place. And uh, so, you know, John walks into my office one day. Can I talk to you? I said, sure. What's up, John? He says, I want to be a leader in your organization. And uh, of course, you know, what John had in mind was I was going to give him some title, was going to promote him, put in in charge of some team, probably paying some more money, whatever. And I happen to have a quote from Eisenhower that I love up on the, uh, up on the wall that said, you know, leadership's the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because they want to do it. And I, I showed him that quote. And I said, you know, I can't make you a leader in this organization. And, uh, you know, he was kind of crestfallen. You could see the conversation was not going in the direction he wanted, but he was at least smart enough kid to go, hey, well, how do I do that? And I said, well, let me think, you know, I, I said, well, there's really kind of three characteristics I've observed that if people exhibit these characteristics consistently in their day-to-day -day activities, people will follow. I said, the first thing you got to be credible. People have to believe when you open your mouth that you're saying the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, you know, he was a kid and maybe had a little bit of a reputation of spouting off in meetings, acting like he knew stuff, saying stuff to make himself look smart. And so he, he said, oh, you mean I need to think before I speak? And I said, well, yeah, that, that's probably a pretty good idea. And, and he said, okay, I think I can do that. And I said, what's next? I said, well, you got to be highly competent because we've got a lot of smart people around here that are really good at their jobs. Nobody's going to follow somebody who's not, you know, really solid at their jobs. And there's a smart young engineer. He could, he could do that. He said, okay, yeah, I can work hard. I can be very good at what I do. And then the third one was the one that I think really hit him between the eyes because he never spent much time thinking about. And I said, you know, for the people you want to lead, they have to believe you care as much about their success as you care about your own success. And that was a thought he had probably never crossed his mind. He had spent his whole time in the organization thinking about he, how he could get ahead, but he had never spent any time thinking about how others, uh, what others might need to perform. And so... I now call those in the, in the training, the three C's of leadership, that if you can exhibit those three, then you can have a, a significant influence on an organization. If a CEO does not, people don't believe that when you say stuff, it's absolutely the truth. You're not spinning it. You're not trying to convince yourself what a great job you're doing when you're not, uh, that you're competent. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be competent. 
and that you deeply care about the success of the organization and the people in the organization as much as you care about your own personal success. That's characteristics. Most people give you the benefit of the doubt and they'll try to follow. Yeah, I totally agree. And how do you think that that translates into employee engagement, right? I mean, so many organizations around the world are struggling with lack of employee engagement. Much of that has to do with management and leadership, if not all of it. What can leaders do to really engage their team, you know, kind of thinking through how they're showing up as a, as a leader, like you, like you just outlined for us? Yeah, so Gallup tells us, Gallup has a, a, a tremendous amount of data on this, that 70% of employee engagement comes down to the person's direct manager. It's often said people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And so uh, one of the roles of the CEO that is often very much overlooked is the responsibility to build a highly effective management team, not just as the CEO be a good manager, but everybody in the organization that's in a management role is part of managing the critical resource, right? I mean, people in most organizations, if all the people quit and went home, there's nothing left of the organization today. I mean, this is not back to Henry Ford and his assembly line or big capital equipment or pieces of machinery where that was the competitive advantage and people were just irrelevant, right? Most of the businesses we run today, people are the intellectual property of the business. They all walk out, there's nothing left. And so the team that 24 by 7, 365 days a year has to be concerned with their productivity is the management team. And so part of the CEO's responsibility is ensuring that that management team is not just random people selected because they happen to be good performers in their individual contributors role and they keep getting promoted because they're a nice guy and they don't cross any waves or whatever, but people who really are focused on the productivity and success of the employees under their management. And, and so that's, that's one of the reasons train management teams, as well as the CEO is because building out that management team under the CEO is probably the most important work the CEO has to ensure happens. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, it's such a journey, right? Because we never are fully trained. I'm just, you know, listening oh, absolutely. to Right. And so like, I mean, I just, I think about how much, I mean, I believe that the number one job of, of a leader is to inspire, you know, their employees to do their very best work and, you know, here at Stone Age, live their dreams, right? Not just at work, but how are they fulfilling everything that they want to in their lives outside of work? And, um, and how oh, I've worked so closely with my, uh, my executive management team and how that trickles down to the rest of the organization. And, you know, I think it can be maybe a little bit overwhelming for leaders, especially if you don't necessarily have the right people on your team. But I always tell people it's a journey. Like you're never just going to be there. There's always going to be some new issue that you're going to have to learn how to, to handle or they're going to screw up handling a situation and you're going to have to go fix it. And so I think that idea of the journey is a really important one for everybody to understand um, as, they're, as they're learning how to be better leaders and as they're developing better leaders. What, what's your philosophy on the journey? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, continuous improvement's got to be the core of any organization uh, that's dealing with people and, and uh, you know, everything changes. And, and, you know, one of the things about teaching CEOs, I'm, I'm a lot better teacher than I am a CEO. <laughs> Uh, because I'm perfect when I teach it, you know, when I try to execute it, I'm not always near as good at it. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that you're always striving. You can always get better. Um, uh, you know, we're dealing with people who, uh, you know, you 
spend all your time trying to understand people and still not get there. So uh, there, there absolutely has to be a continuous improvement uh, mindset in the organization that we're constantly trying to improve our people management, our engagement, our productivity. Yep. Yep. And how important do you think adaptability is in all of this, right? I mean, I look back at, at all of the things that, that I, we faced as a company. We got hacked right before COVID, uh, you know, the, the, the volatility of the economy. How important is adaptability right now in, in a modern company and, and being a modern day CEO? Change is, is constant. The speed, the pace of change appears to all of us to be increasing, certainly. Uh, doesn't seem like that's going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Uh, and so obviously, you know, any organization has to be agile in nature. You're not making decisions for 10 years. I, was, I just walked out of a meeting where I, I was helping some people do some strategic planning. And I went back in after being out and they, they were talking about what was going to happen in 10 years. And I, and I just had to laugh. I'm like, you don't know what's going to happen next week, but at least we can talk about what we're going to do next week in some meaningful way. I don't, you know, I lose interest when we're talking about what's going to happen in 2035 or what, <laughs> because I know it's going to be very different than any of us imagine. Uh, and so, you know, part of our management system is kind of building an agile system where you train the organization to make turns on a consistent regular basis. So it's not a big deal when, you know, I mean, COVID hits, it's obviously a major disruption, but the fact we're going to go in a different direction, the organization's already conditioned to be able to do that. Too many organizations are very set in their ways when they need to change, it becomes a circulating effort. I think you need to build an organization that accepts change as a constant part of the business environment. Yeah. And what advice do you have for those leaders, those CEOs who maybe that doesn't come naturally? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one area where personality matters, right? If, if you're too risk averse, uh, you know, you're probably not going to be a great CEO because you're just not going to be able to pull the trigger on things. On the other hand, if you're too risk tolerant, you're the person that has to upset the apple cart just because it's not exciting enough. And so that's another place where kind of a balanced personality, somebody's kind of in the middle of it can weigh, you know, the trade-offs of the various risks um, against each other. Uh, reasonably well, can hear from both sides and, and balance that is really important. The, you know, I've kind of found in my career, the extreme people from a behavioral perspective are often your best individual contributors uh, and your balanced people are often your best executives and managers. I'm really curious about your opinion on virtual and hybrid and re return to work because sure. I think so many CEOs are grappling with this. Some are demanding uh, people are coming back into the office. Some are going completely virtually. we got the whole spectrum. You know, yep. what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, what do you think some of the challenges that we're going to face as we continue to figure out what this whole thing looks like? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but, you know, and this is not a problem. I mean, I remember an employee 20 years ago coming to me with this elaborate plan of how they were going to move to some cabin in Montana and they could do their job just as well from that cabin in Montana as they could do it in Austin, Texas. And they got about halfway into their argument and I stopped them and said, you might want to stop here because if you convince me you can do your job from anywhere in the world, I might have someone from anywhere in the world do your job. And there are a lot of 
of people in other parts of the world who are willing to do jobs for a lot less wages than most Americans are. And uh, so if that were really true, if, if your job is that you think you can really do it from anywhere in the world just as well, that's not a very good career to be in. I, w- I would advise people to search for a career where they can't do it from anywhere in the world because that's going to go to the lowest bidder over time, right? Or be replaced by automation in some cases. Uh, the things you can't do remotely are trust among a team or, or, or it takes much, much longer to do it. Um, trust is the key component in an organization that's high, highly productive. You can build a mediocre organization without trust. You can't build a high performance, highly productive organization without trust among the team. And I don't know how to build that quickly in a remote environment. And so, yes, if we have worked together for five years and we have a trusted relationship and you want to move to Alaska, certain situations, maybe that works okay. But uh, in the startup environment, in the team building environment, in the early stages, bringing on new employees, uh, you know, particularly bringing on new employees that have never had a work history. If you're hiring new college grads that don't even know what the work environment is like. Uh, bringing those on in a virtual environment, I think, is a recipe for for uh, you know, great difficulties and, and lost productivity. Yep. Uh, obviously, every company is different. There's, again, certain jobs that can be remote, um, but in, in broad sense of building a, a high-performing team, it's much, much harder in the remote environment. We run a hybrid environment here, and I think it works pretty well. But, um, but we, you know, we require people to come in and, you know, have team building activities and the collaboration working together. And I think everybody understands it. Um, it's just doing it in a way that it doesn't feel like it's a mandate, right? Where people still have some like autonomy. Or, I mean, that's what we all want, right? Autonomy over our work. So how do we partner with our employees to be able to make sure that we don't lose that collaboration, that team building? You know, the magic that happens, um, but allows some flexibility for work from work from home situations as well. But, you know, it's a big experiment that we're running and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it how it all plays out over the next five years. It will be interesting. And I think you will see, you know, a wide range of solutions. Yeah. I think there's one answer. Uh, it very much depends on your job and your industry. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I have a few more questions before we wrap up. Um, so the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. In context of leadership, what does Reflect Forward mean to you? Well, it, it reminds me of a phrase we use uh, called manage the future. Um, and so uh, I say that 80% of a CEO, if you're doing the job right, 80% of your time should be trying to anticipate uh, what is likely to happen in the future and make plans to be prepared for that as much as possible. I think most CEOs spend 80% or more of their time dealing with the firefight of the day, or they walk in and you know, line up outside of their office and they deal with this problem or that problem about something today or what happened yesterday. Uh, and the CEO really needs to be in a situation where they're able to spend the vast majority of time. You're always going to have some issues you have to deal with, but vast majority of their time trying to anticipate what's likely to happen you know, as far out the future as they can, positioning the organization to make sure you have the right people, right capital, everything in place to take advantage of what you see developing over the rest. Uh, you know, I use the analogy of the bus driver. You're the bus driver. You want to spend your time looking at the windshield 
anticipating where the next curve is, avoiding the next pothole. You don't want to spend your time staring at the rear view mirror, dealing with stuff that happened yesterday or, or the day before. Yep. Agreed. Thank you. So um, how about any book recommendations? Like I know you've written a couple and maybe you can talk about your books, but for people who you just want to generally improve their leadership skills or who think maybe they want to be a CEO someday or, you know, those of us who currently a CEO, do you have a reading list that you, you could share? I have an extensive reading list. We, go, we, we have the course. Uh, you know, the one that I tell people most uh, got me, you know, headed, I think, in the right direction was a book that came out 20 plus years ago called First Break All the Rules, What Great Managers Do Differently. Uh, yeah, from the Gallup organization, Marcus Buckingham was the key uh, proponent of that. And it was the first time. Uh, as an engineer, I had had a presentation about what people would call the soft skills, the human side, that at least met kind of my analytical brain. Is there really evidence or is this just somebody making up anecdotes and telling stories that kind of make some sense, but but there's no system behind it or no analytical thinking behind it. So that, you know, uh, which of course is now uh, available in the Gallup Q12 survey uh, is a is a product and a a book that I highly recommend. Uh, it's really a playbook for management. Um, and a lot of the things we talk about uh, comes directly from it. I love that book. It set me on my whole direction. So I'm so glad you said that. Uh, I, I recommend that one as well. Uh, game-changing book. And it's still so incredibly relevant, even though it was written two decades ago. So I'm glad you shared that. How about your books? Let's talk a little bit about what okay. you've written. Sure. Uh, so the, the first book I read was called The Senior Tightrope. Uh, I had uh, I was chairman of the Austin Technology Council um, for several years, and one of the thoughts in Austin was, "Hey, if we we need to get more money, more capital. Okay, we can do that. But if we do that, we need more CEOs who are qualified to do something with that capital." And uh, having been a CEO for a time, I said, and having done training in my first job at the Navy, I said, "Well, I'll develop a course." And so I started teaching a course for CEOs. And then that led to, to writing the book. And what I was really doing with that book was trying to put out kind of for public discussion, a systematic way to think about the CEO role. Because when I started and even started the course, I thought I was going to find out that, you know, Stanford had a, a model for how to be CEO, Harvard had a model. And I would come in as the practical person and say, you academics don't get it. But instead, what I find is, is really nobody had a model we're thinking about the CEO role at scale. There, there's at least been some stuff done around kind of the startup environment. There's some, you know, kind of a literature base around that. But but around CEO at scale, once you've got a real business, uh, what does that job look like Did you think about? It? So the attempt was kind of to lay out a system. And, you know, I hope somebody was going to come along and say, oh, that's great. That's good. That's bad. Though you think about this, what about that? Surprisingly to me, it's held up very well. And I think the book still has, uh, you know, there's, there's not much in the book that I would change today. Um, but then I had people come to me and ask follow-on questions. How do I build a management team that aligns with all these principles you talk about in the CEO? So we wrote a book called The Manager's Playbook to kind of build a, a management program for people. And then a lot of CEOs said, okay, well, this system's great. Uh, I like it, but it's not very prescriptive. It doesn't say do this, do that. What do I need to do? And uh, the new bot, a cheap executive operating system that we'll be launching this month, 
uh, is very much that way and that it's prescriptive and it gives you a set of tools and forms and things to actually go do that are very tangible as opposed to just broad platitudes about how you need to be a good leader. And so that's where we hope the new book is that uh, people will really take it and operationalize it into their organization. And if somebody was interested in finding those books, um, do you have a website? Can I send send them to easily? Yeah, sure. The American CEO, AmericanCEO.com uh, website. Where you, all the books are available on Amazon and in all the formats. And uh, the new book will be available here uh, right the, the second half of May. Wonderful. All right. And one final question. Um, if, an, if a CEO or an aspiring CEO wanted to grow their skills and the role, what kind of support would you recommend that they seek out? Uh, good question. I, I think um, you need somebody who can give you honest feedback that's independent from the organization uh, that you're running, but has enough visibility to, to give you the right feedback. Uh, that can be a board member in some cases, but sometimes they're conflicted a little bit and their interests are a little different than yours, can be a former CEO, can be someone, but you, you need somebody because when you become CEO, nobody tells you the truth because uh, they can't. There's there's a filter when you're talking to the boss who ultimately has control of your job. Uh, they may, you know, they, they can try, but but there's always this filter and you're not really uh, getting the, the absolute truth. You need somebody that can kind of help you uh, discern what, what's really going on uh, where you're doing the right thing, where things you are and where things aren't working. Um, and so I think that's very important for any CEO. Yeah, great advice. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and sharing your wisdom and this insight. Um, super, super interesting. I wish I would have known you 17 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, st I'm sure I could still have a thing or two to learn from you. So it's been really great having you today. Thanks for having me, Jerry. All right. Hang tight, everybody. I'll be right back. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this podcast interview. Joel was so informative. Um, I wish I would have known him years and years and years ago. Uh, great stuff here. With that, I'm going to leave you for today. I hope that if you like this podcast, that you will write a review, share it with a friend, subscribe to it. It always helps with the algorithms and it shares great interviews like this. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.